Well, good morning. It's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning and to be here. We had a very nice ride down here. My, my daughter drove, and that was a blessing. And because uh, I didn't have to, I mostly napped all the way, so I should be pretty perky, right? We saw a bald eagle on the way down. And, and on the way through town, we saw a whole bunch of churches with their parking lots just all filled up. And it was really nice to get here and see that this was one of them. And that God's house is so full here today. So bless you all for, for being here. Thank you. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 28. And we'll go to the end. And start at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. Now turn over to Mark 16. And again, down near the end there, we'll start at verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now let's turn over to Luke 24. Back to the end of that chapter, to verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now turn over to John 20. I'm going to exercise your Bible flipping skills early this morning. How about that? And down to verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had, said, when he had so said, he shewed unto them his hands and his side, 
And then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Now turn over to Acts 1. And down to verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So we all recognize these verses as the Great Commission. You know, Matthew 28, 19 is probably the verse we hear the most often when we think the Great Commission. But here we see that it's repeated in all the Gospels and it's repeated again at the beginning of Acts. So, so what is it? Who is commanded? Who are they to take these teachings to? What exactly are they supposed to teach? And how are they supposed to teach it? Is this relevant for the church today? Is this something that's commanded to you and me? We see that this is Jesus' last command to the disciples before he ascended into heaven. Does that mean it's also the most important command? These are questions that we might hear from other Christians, from those we tell the gospel to, and questions we might reasonably ask ourselves. Do we have answers? What is the Great Commission? 1 Peter 3.14 says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So what do we think when we hear these verses? You know, often they'll be used in one way or another to criticize the church or to criticize a particular church. You know, either the church's emphasis isn't evangelical enough, they, they just focus on forms and rules and they're not teaching the gospel. Or they're too evangelical. Well, where is the teaching for how I'm supposed to do my daily walk? How can we evangelize people if we haven't been properly prepared? Which accusation would you bring to your church? Or do you hear from your neighbors and acquaintances from outside the church? Many churches have split and failed over trying to find the answers to these questions. So we do well to consider what we are commanded here and and what those answers are. We're not going to get too deep into that. If you really want to get deep into it, you should read Gary Miller's Church Matters. And I imagine a lot of you have already. But 
We're going to talk about what we have to decide. How does this affect me and my family? What is this teaching mean to my Christian walk? How are we to respond as a part of Christ's church to this command? So, so let's take a look at this morning about have a ready answer. Teach all nations. So let's start with, is it I? Who is really commanded here? Now, Jesus gave all these commands to the 11. So are they really for us? Is this a command that comes all the way down 2,000 years to this day? Should we still be doing this? Is it, is it I? We're, are we each personally responsible to teach the commands of Jesus to all nations, to the ends of the earth? And then how do I know if I'm really called to do that? Well, let's turn over to Isaiah 6. And we'll start with verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then said I, Here am I, send me. So, now, who is commanded? Could Jesus have meant this command only for the eleven? Well, all through the Old Testament, we see God issuing and people answering his call. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets. And here we have this most lovely account of Isaiah's call. Now, those of us who've been in the lot, we kind of have a little conceit we allow ourselves sometimes that, that we can feel these verses maybe just a little more than everyone else because of going through that process. But the fact is, we're, we're not at all special in that way. This should describe the experience of Everyone who has accepted Jesus into their heart. You know, in verses 1 through 4, we have this realization of who God, who Jesus really is. 
confronted with his glory, seeing his train filling the temple, the smoke rising, the booming voices. Jesus isn't just a nice guy telling us how to live a good life. He's the king of all creation. And then we have the awe of realizing we're in his presence. We found ourselves in the throne room. And we also realize that it is death to be there in the presence of God in our current sinful state. And then we have this free offer and immediate delivery of salvation. And it opens our heart to hear the call. Whom shall I send and who will go? Filled with awe and love and gratitude, what other answer could we make? But here am I. Send me. No one could honestly ask, oh, oh, were you talking to me? Not, not a bit. Why did you think you were brought into the throne room of God in the first place? It's because he had something for you to do. He has a purpose for you. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You know, in, in 1611, when the King James was translated, I think everybody made something with their hands. I, I think that idea of workmanship really conveyed the d- desired meaning there. But, but I wonder if we really get that today. You know, the New Living Testament has a lovely rendering of that verse of Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Masterpiece. Not merely made, created with a special care, attention, to be a centerpiece, a capstone, a last completing piece of the work of creation. That's what you are to God. You're one of his masterworks. The Amplified Bible says, For we are his workmanship, his own masterwork, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which he set so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. You are special to God. You weren't just created to sit on a shelf and admire. You're a carefully prepared tool made with a specific task in mind. Did you ever take your car to the shop to have uh, something worked on inside the door? Like a window crank or something like that. And you get your car back, and that door panel never fits right again. Do you know why that is? Because your mechanic just grabbed a big honking screwdriver there and shoved it in that door and popped that door panel off. And he broke all the connectors that hold that door panel to the door. You know, the manufacturer of the car, whichever car it is, they make a special tool. It costs about $20 that just slips in there and pops those fasteners loose without breaking them. 
So that's why when you go to the body shop and get your car back, that door panel still fits. Because they buy the right part or the right tool. That's the kind of tool that you are. You're just the right tool for the job. So, who is called? I am. You are. All of us. When we heard the call to accept Jesus and to be saved, that was also the call to go and do his works. So, there's that go thing again. Well, where am I to go? And to who? How, how is that supposed to work? You know, this going thing, that's really a big problem for us, isn't it? You know, are, are we too tied to our place in this world to respond the way we should? Are we taking the path that he has set, or are we, are we even already on it? Is the man who hasn't heard the gospel in Ukraine, is he more important than the man in this house right over here? Is one of them more important to God that he would hear the gospel? You know, Peter seems to have stayed mostly around in Jerusalem. On the other hand, Paul traveled literally the entire known Roman world. How do we know which is for us? Which are we supposed to do? Let's turn over to Acts 8. We'll just um, start there at verse 3. As for Saul, now this is right after the stoning of Stephen, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So, in this case, there was an event. There was a terrible persecution. And it drove many of the disciples of Christ away from their homes. They literally fled for their lives. Now, Peter and John stayed in Jerusalem. Now notice the scripture in no way says that they were lesser workers than Philip for having stayed back in Jerusalem. In fact, they would join Philip later in Samaria when help was needed. And then they would return home, again, preaching the gospel in many villages along the way. And the first thing we learn then from that is to be bold for the Lord. We know Jesus himself had prepared the way in Samaria, right? We just read that story in Sunday school a week ago. But why did Philip go to Samaria when he fled Jerusalem? Maybe he had a vision. Maybe that was just the only safe direction out of town. We, we just don't know. But the point for us is that wherever Philip found himself, he spoke the gospel. He was fleeing because he was endangered for teaching the gospel. They wanted to arrest him and punish him for preaching the name of Jesus. He fled, but as he fled, he didn't hide. 
He preached the word everywhere he went. God put him where he was, and he preached. Going down to verse 26 then. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? We need to listen for the Lord's leading. When was the last time the angel of the Lord said something to you? Philip, go down to this place and find and do what I tell you there. Would you hear it if he did? Or can we be like the man, he, he was talking to a friend and he said, you know, the other day my, my wife said to me, you're not listening to me at all, are you? And I thought, what a strange way for her to start a conversation. Now, I know most of the women get that. You guys are scaring me. Okay. <laughs> are we paying attention? Do we have an attitude of listening? Now, if we're not listening to the person that we're sharing our life with, are we listening for the Holy Spirit? Are our ears open? Some of the manuscripts actually say that the angel said, go south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza around noon. The angel gave Philip specific instructions. What road? What time? But he didn't tell him why. Philip had to trust the Spirit for that. And he had to pay attention to get the instructions. Do you have an inner dialogue? You know, it's like, is there like inside your head, you're talking to yourself or you're talking to the Spirit or you're praying or you're singing songs or just something is going on inside your head? Maybe just figuring out your day. Maybe thinking about what you're going to do next. Just this inner dialogue is kind of going on inside your mind. And they took a survey here a little while ago, and that's what they asked people. Do you have an inner dialogue? And about a third of the people say, oh, yeah, all the time. And about a third of the people say, well, yeah, a lot of the time. And then about a third of the people said, no, not at all. And I'm... Opposite. I mean, my head just never shuts down. Sometimes I can't sleep because I can't get it to stop. And so maybe those are the voices. I need to get rid of some of those. <laughs> but but that's just a horror to me. There's nothing going on inside your head? Nothing at all? So is that what's happening with all these people? Why you see them scrolling their phone all the time? Because they're trying to get something in there. You know, they're just lonely in there. But on the other hand, we do all need to be making those times where our inner self is quiet and we can just listen 
and listen for the word of the Lord. Back on down to Acts 8.38 then. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they come, came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. We need to continue where it is that we are sent. So the Ethiopian came up out of the water and Philip was gone, and he didn't care. He just got in his chariot and went on his way. Why? Because all he could see now was Jesus. He was ready to start his walk and anxious to be on his way. Philip, on the other hand, found himself on down the road. He didn't get to follow up with the Ethiopian. He didn't get to see how his walk was going, to send him cards, to give him one more teaching. The Spirit caught him away to some other place. Azotus was about 30 miles away from Samaria. So what did Philip do? He picked himself up and he began preaching again until he came to the place where the Lord led him. Now, we don't expect to be miraculously picked up and dropped in the place where we're going to preach. Wouldn't that be nice? Just boom, you're there. Hey, I, I need to talk to you because God just plopped me right in front of you. And you would have their attention, wouldn't you? That, that'd be helpful too. But that doesn't happen to us today. But if you think about it, what is it to us today to travel 30 miles? I mean, really, if you put everything together, your arrival at Walmart is only a little less miraculous than Philip's arrival at Azotus. You literally got in this big machine and traveled 30 miles in an instant compared to any other time in history and showed up. You were home, and now you're here among all these people. What are you supposed to do? Like Philip, everywhere we find ourselves, we should continue in the work that we're assigned. So where do we go? We go to all the places that the Lord sends us, all the places that we find ourselves. And wherever we are, we have the word of the Lord with us to teach. Well, so we know it's us. We know we're going to go. Now, so we're going to teach. So what do we teach? What are we going to teach when we get there? Well, what did Jesus say? Mark 16 specifically says, we will teach the gospel. In Matthew 28 says, go and baptize. That clearly means teaching the gospel, right? Baptizing is the result of teaching the gospel. Also, in Matthew, it tells us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded. That's a pretty big list. Luke 24 says to preach repentance and the remission of sins. John 20 says, as my Father sent me, I send you. Think about the amount of confidence that Jesus has put in you. He has passed on the task given to him by the Father to you, to us. So what is the gospel? 
We're going to teach the gospel. What is the gospel? Do I have to memorize a specific telling? Should I go to, um, what is it, Ken Ham's website? He has a bunch of little gospel things where you can just tell the whole gospel from creation to maybe get one of those and memorize it. Do I want to do that? What do I need to include? What can I leave out? What's the right thing to say to people? Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is thought to be the oldest written creed. So what's a creed? It's a succinct statement of our faith, and it's suitable to memorize and to preach from. And we'll start at verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the Twelve. And after that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. You couldn't do much better in your teaching of the gospel than to memorize and recite or paraphrase this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Pretty much all of the gospel is there. But however you tell it, if if you memorize it out of this version or that version or you want to tell it in your own words, don't skip verse 8. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. Not seen of Paul, seen of you, seen of Nathan, seen of Danny, seen of Ivan, seen of you. Last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. That is the heart of the gospel. Jesus saved me, and because of the work he did in me, I know that he will save you too. That's what you will teach. Well, so how do we teach? We always want to know, you know, what's the school look like? How do we teach? Where are these classes going to be held? How do we get the students to show up? What kind of preparations do we need? Do I need a big blackboard? Do I need an overhead projector? You know, what do I need to bring along? Where am I going to do this? What kind of preparations do we need? And this is where we begin to see there's really no separation between evangelism and doctrine. We have to have the one in order to have the other. So what about our preparation then? Our biggest excuse for not sharing the gospel, you'll hear it out of everyone who's tried, I wasn't ready. I'm just not ready. No, I I can't, I don't have have 1 Corinthians 15 memorized, right? I I don't know what to say. I'm just not, I'm not on fire enough, or I'm not, I just don't have the skills or whatever. 
But really, this is the last thing that we should be worried about. Here, we, we just saw only one chapter of one epistle is enough to prepare us to preach the whole gospel. And more than that, we have our own experience of Jesus. We should be burning to tell anyone who would listen about the things that he's done for us. Woe unto the poor people who ask me to come to their church and give their testimony. It's like two hours and they still have to shut me up and drag me off. Because there's so much to tell. He's done so many wonderful things. And your lives are exactly the same. You have something to say. You have plenty to say. At conference a couple weeks ago, our brother told us that the first step to biblical conviction is to love the Lord. To have a burning and abiding desire to love him and be closer to him. If you have that kind of love, you want to tell everyone about it. If we love the Lord, we'll be learning his scripture, we'll be praying for his guidance, and we'll be talking about our relationship all the time. And then we will be prepared. He will prepare us. Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The uttermost part of the earth. That's where we are. Right? We're here. We're across how many oceans from where they were. We are in the uttermost part of the earth to share the gospel. And notice in the command is the promise. The Holy Ghost will come to you and you will receive power. Even in the face of persecution, you will not need to worry about how you will answer. In Matthew 10, 19, Jesus says, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that very hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. If you answered, I will go, send me, the proper words will be given to you, whenever they are needed. You don't need to go back and second guess, oh, I didn't tell them that, and I should have told them this, and I just told it. No. The Spirit gave you the words you needed for that encounter. You will be prepared. So we're prepared. So what's the place? Where is it? Is it on the street in front of Walmart? Is it here in the church building? Is it downtown D.C. when we get off the bus? What, what is this, this place? Well, the place isn't a building, a school, or, or a church. The place is we need to be somewhere where the students want to be. We need to be in the place where they need to be. What place is that? That place is the presence of God, separate from this world and following God in the peace of God. When you have and are those things, people see that and they want those things. So how do they see that we're in a place that they want and need to be? What do we do to show them that we have what they want? Well, we follow the instructions that we're supposed to pass on to them. We keep all the commands that Jesus gave us. Now, how do we do that? First, we do it by our love. First, we must demonstrate God's love. Now, how do we do that? 
We do that by the way we treat each other within his church. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now notice what Jesus didn't say there. He didn't say people will know we're his because we're nice to them. Now, of course, we treat everyone with kindness and in a loving way. But that isn't what shows them that we belong to Jesus. They see it in the brotherly love within the church. Everyone wants to be loved. They need to see that the place to find love isn't in the world It's with God. They want to see the love of the brotherhood so that they will want to be a part of it. 1 John 4 says, um, starting at verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. Who knows God hears us? He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Why are we able to experience a love that people in the world cannot? Because we have Christ in us. Love is of God, and to have that love, we must come to him. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. It's through God's love that we gain a heart to reach out to the lost, to see their sins covered, and to see them redeemed for Christ. We love not because it's good for us, but because Jesus commanded us, because Jesus first loved us. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The first thing we need to show them is love. Well, how else do we show them that we're in the place that we need? Through our speech. There is possibly no greater witness to our faith, to our walk with the Lord, than our speech. James 3.10 says, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. You know, a modern translation of that might be, you kiss your mother with that mouth. Right? These things can't come out of our mouth, and at the same time, we praise Christ with that same mouth. In the world, speech is used to threaten, to frighten, to belittle, and to tear down, to make lies and false promises, and to conceal evil intentions. 
Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. In the church, our speech repeats the word of God. It is used to build up and to give grace. And people see the difference from the speech of the world immediately when they talk to you. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech be always seasoned with grace, with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Our speech invites and welcomes and offers faith. So in addition to our speech, we need to show people that we're in the place they want to be by our conversation. Oh no, wait, didn't we just talk about speech? Well, in the King James, when we talk about conversation, we're talking about not the things that we say, but the things that we do. Our conversation is our conduct, our behavior. Psalm 50, 23 says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. And we often remind ourselves that people outside the church may not share our convictions, but they certainly know what our convictions are. They have a really good idea of how we say we ought to be living. If we're not walking the walk, just like our speech, it's noticed. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify in God in the day of visitation. Why is our walk important to anyone outside the faith? Your conduct, your conversation stands as its own telling of the gospel. Your humble, meek, submitted life is proof that Jesus' commands can be obeyed and that that obedience brings blessing. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. You don't have to have all the scripture memorized. You don't have to be ordained. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be poor. Your good works show them the gospel and allow them to give glory to God. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Our conversation, our walk, unites us together like soldiers in a line of battle. The picture Paul gives here is that standing before the church, before the united people of the church, people in their sin feel they're going to be overwhelmed, overrun. They're convicted of their sin. They want to be a part of the battle line, not a part of the enemy. They makes people desire the safety of the unity of the church. 
1 Peter 3.1 says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Our conversation builds us up within the church, and it wins back those who wander astray. We can win souls for Christ through our example. Your walk is a telling of the gospel. So in all these things, we show that we are in the place where the lost want to be. The love of the Lord in the church, our godly speech, godly lives, draw the lost like moths to a flame, and they will eagerly hear the gospel of Christ. Turn over to 1 Peter 1. And down to verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto feigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart and fervently, being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. You are called. You are prepared. You are in the place where the students will come, and they will want to hear the gospel as much as you did. Shall we have a song? Number 426. Four twenty six. Oh, oh, oh. 